We're going to look into the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Matthew chapter 1. I know that uh, for almost all of you, some of your favorite passages are the genealogies. <laughs> you love to read them and you love to meditate on them and pronounce all the names and... We're going to study and look at Matthew's genealogy uh, this morning. He, this is his introduction to us uh, of Jesus. We looked last week at John's introduction as he introduce, introduces to us the Logos, the Word of God. And uh, in verse 14 of chapter 1 of John's Gospel, the Word had become flesh. So the Word was eternal the Word was personal, the Word was God, we learned last week, and the Word became flesh. God took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And so that's how John introduces Jesus to his readers. Matthew is writing to a different audience than John does. He writes predominantly to a Jewish audience. And so his introduction is going to be different. Remember, John wrote basically to a Greek audience, to those who are imbued with the Greek philosophies and so forth. So Matthew writes to a different audience, and if you or I were to introduce somebody, our culture, we don't go through a whole long list of, of lineage, do we? I mean, if we introduce Kathleen to you, we don't go back and give you her whole lineage all the way back to uh, uh, Abraham, to uh, Adam, and so forth. Uh, well, no, we just say, this is my friend, and I commend my friend to you, and, and uh, maybe we say a few things about the person, but we don't give... A genealogy. We don't give a, a lineage. We don't give a pedigree. And what Matthew does here is he gives us a literal pedigree, a, a, the whole lineage of Jesus back to Abraham. And that's significant. Again, to us, uh, this is uninteresting. This is, uh, we could just kind of skip over it. After all, it's just a listing of names. And, uh, but there's far more to that, and we're not going to study the genealogy in detail, but I do want to um, kind of point to some things that the genealogy as a whole can, share, can, can, can teach us, can share with us. And there are three things that I think are, are uh, significant, and I want to kind of share those things with you this morning. They're really not much new in terms of that which most of us already know, uh, but they certainly bear repeating. And uh, we start off in verse 1 when uh, Matthew says, this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, to the Jew, the most interesting and most essential way to begin the story of a man's life was with his lineage, with the recounting of his heritage. The Jews were exceedingly interested in genealogies. They were exceedingly interested in a man's history and where he came from, who his parents and, and on back were. We see this uh, in the Old Testament with uh, many, many genealogies. In fact, this is people were uh, critically uh, interested in uh, knowing their backgrounds. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, 
even writing his own autobiography, introduces himself at the beginning of the autobiography with his own genealogy to demonstrate his heritage that he uh, is indeed a Jew. The reason behind this intense interest that the Jews had in their genealogies, in their lineages, was that they set the greatest possible emphasis on the purity of their lineage. As you know from reading the scriptures and uh, historical uh, books about the Bible and the nation of Israel, Jewish people were uh, very, very uh, selective and very prejudiced and uh, they were very, very concerned with the purity of their lineage. Indeed, it was thought that uh, if in any man's background could be found a hint of foreign blood, then that person uh, was or lost his right to be called a Jew. So you can understand that they were very concerned that their lineage be pure. Uh, they... Uh, were not considered then a member of the people of God. They were defiled. They were polluted. Um, a priest, for instance, uh, was bound to produce an unbroken record of his lineage all the way back to Aaron, who was Moses' brother, who was the very first priest. And so this person was bound to produce that unbroken lineage. Indeed, in Ezra, the book of Ezra in the Old Testament, uh, we see that when Ezra is reorganizing the worship of God and uh, after the Babylonian exile and was setting up once again the priesthood and organizing the priesthood to function, there were three groups of people from priestly families who came forward and presented themselves uh, for priestly responsibilities and priestly duties, but they were rejected because they could not produce their family genealogies. Let me read to you the verse from Ezra chapter 2, verse 62. We're told that these searched for their family records, but they could not find them, and so were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. And so you can see how vitally important it was for the Jews to have uh, their records. And uh, though this may seem to us an uninteresting passage uh, to the Jew, it would be most impressive and most significant that the pedigree of Jesus could be traced back to Abraham through David. And that's the emphasis that Matthew puts on it in verse 1 when he says this is a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And uh, he chronicles all those generations. Now his genealogy in this passage is arranged in three sections, 14 names in each section. And uh, the three sections are based on three major periods in the history of Israel. It was a, uh, a device that make, made uh, memorization easy. They had these names in these three sections, 14 in each section, and they corresponded to three major stages in the history of Israel. Uh, those three major stages, uh, the first one takes the history of Israel down to David. So the inception of the nation uh, with Abraham down to King David. That's the first major section of Israel's history. 
it, is, it represents the elevation of the nation. It represents the exaltation of Israel in its kingly reign, the very thing that God intended for Israel to be a preeminent nation among the nations. They were the chosen people, true? And so we see this very first section coming down to the point of King David, Israel under David's reign was at the height of its glory, the height of its power. David was the most powerful of Israel's kings. And uh, it was at that point where Israel had expanded its borders uh, to uh, the greatest extent that they would experience. Now, the second section goes from David to the Babylonian captivity. So you can see they have risen wonderfully, but the second section chronicles through all the names and so forth. Uh, it chronicles their demise, their loss of freedom and uh, the tragic disaster of the Babylonian captivity, uh, the Assyrian warfare and destruction of the northern kingdoms. We studied that last year. So the whole second section goes from David to Babylon, to the captivity. So you see the rise of Israel and the fall of Israel in that second section. The third section takes a story from the Babylonian captivity and the return from the captivity down to Jesus Christ. And the focus here now is on Jesus and he is the one person who can liberate Israel from their slavery. He's the one person that can restore the liberty, restore the freedom, restore the glory that was previously lost. And so those three major segments of history are represented here in that genealogy. And by analogy, this is significant. So we say, well, that, that's, that's wonderful history. That's good to know. But how does that relate to me personally? Well, by analogy... These three major stages of history in Israel represented by the genealogy of Jesus represent also three stages in the spiritual history of mankind. There are great parallels here for us. Just as in the first stage with Israel, that, that Israel rose to glory under the reign, the final reign of David, so also we see in the first stage of man's history, man was created for greatness. Israel was created for greatness. Israel is, a, is a, in a microcosm, a picture of what God wants to do and his design is for mankind in general. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, we see God's purpose for man. He creates man in his own image. He creates man with a destiny for royalty. Man is intended for greatness. And uh, we see the second stage in chapter 3 of Genesis where man loses that greatness. Man loses his uh, intimate relationship with God. Instead of being a child of God, man becomes a child of the devil, in the words of Jesus, and uh, a slave to sin. So just like Israel... Though it was powerful, exalted, uh, fulfilling God's, God's destiny for them, though they turned away and fell, so has man also, though meant for greatness, has fallen away. That's the second great stage in the history of mankind. 
G.K. Chesterton, the great Catholic writer, said this, whatever else is true of man, man is not what he was meant to be. Man is not what he was meant to be. And I think all of us are aware of that. We all have a, have a sense in us of great, great, unrealized potential. True? And uh, one of our great frustrations in humanity is our inability to uh, succeed or to fulfill what we perceive is as the potential that is in us, that is in mankind. We're always falling short, always falling short. And now that sets the stage for the third stage in the history of man, just as in the third stage in the history of Israel, Jesus comes to set Israel free. Jesus comes to fulfill their destiny. Jesus comes also so that man may regain his greatness, that greatness that was lost. This is, an, I mean, you have the whole, right in this genealogy, you have encapsulated the whole history of mankind, the whole plan of God, encapsulated right in the genealogy of Jesus through Matthew. Man had the capacity to choose. He chose independence rather than remain in a dependent relationship on God, fell away from God, fell away from that life-giving relationship. But God wonderfully does not abandon man to himself. He doesn't abandon man to his own foolish devices. Isn't it glorious that the end of man's story is not left to be a tragedy? Isn't it wonderful that God does not give up on man? He doesn't give up on Israel. He doesn't give up on man. God is faithful. And so we see his faithfulness in the third stage when the genealogy comes down to the point of Christ, it culminates in the person of Jesus Christ. God sent his son, Jesus, to save not only Israel, but to save all men. And man can then regain his greatness, the greatness that was intended by God initially, through Christ. So we see encapsulated in this genealogy the three major stages of not only Israel's history, but the history of man and the plan of God and the move of God. And as, as we look at, at, the, at the next phase of this, I, wanted, I want to emphasize that the genealogy also emphasizes uh, two things about Jesus specifically. The first thing is that Jesus is the son of David. He is the son of David. And this is the basic reason Matthew writes the genealogy to demonstrate this. Over and over, when you read through the New Testament, you see uh, this stressed. You see this title, these, this, this name, the son of David, uh, applied to Jesus. In, in Peter's sermon in the book of Acts, after the resurrection and after the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches his very first sermon, he speaks of Jesus as the son of David. You read that in uh, Paul's letter to the Roman church in chapter 1, verse 3 of the Romans, Paul speaks of Jesus Christ descended from David according to the flesh. The son of David. Um, John's gospel, or I'm sorry, the book of Revelation written by John in chapter 22 of Revelation. John hears the risen Christ himself speak these words. He says, I am the root 
and the offspring of David. This emphasis on Jesus being the son of David. Repeatedly, Jesus in the Gospels is so addressed after healing the blind and the mute man in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 12. The people, the people exclaim, could this be the son of David? They're astounded. In uh, Matthew chapter 15, when the Canaanite woman comes to Jesus, a Canaanite woman, not even a member of the nation of Israel, but a Canaanite woman comes to Jesus and pleads for mercy for her daughter, and she addresses Jesus as son of David. Son of David. In Matthew chapter 20, the blind men, as Jesus walks by, the blind men cry out to Jesus as son of David. And in Matthew chapter 21... It is as the son of David that the crowds greet Jesus as he enters Jerusalem for his last time prior to his suffering and crucifixion. You see, this is of great significance to Israel. The fact that that Matthew is speaking of Jesus as son of David, the son of David. For Israel was a waiting people. They were a waiting people. What were they waiting for? The son of David. <laughs> they were waiting for deliverance. They were waiting for their salvation. They never forgot, nor could they ever forget, that they were the chosen people of God. A select people, specially blessed, called into existence for God's purposes. They could never, ever forget their destiny. Though their history was one of disaster, though their history was one of subjection to nation after nation after nation that would dominate them, they never would forget their destiny. It was their dream. It was their hope uh, that into this world would come a descendant of David, the son of David, who would lead them to the glory which they were uh, believing and hoping was their right. So they were, they were waiting. And, and at the time of Jesus' first coming, Israel was living in a, in a great sense of messianic expectation. They were any day. They read the Old Testament, but they knew the prophecies. They knew Daniel's prophecies of, of the Son of Man who would come. And so they were living in a moment of great expectation. However, as you know, Jesus did not fulfill their expectations of what the Son of David would do when he came. That would be reserved for the second coming. So Israel was a waiting people. And Matthew is, in effect, stressing through the genealogy. The one you were waiting for, the one you had been waiting for, for generation after generation, hoping and longing for to set you free, has come. And he is Jesus Christ. He is the son of David. They were haunted by their destiny. Jesus is the answer. Not only to Israel's hopes and dreams, but he is the answer to the dreams of people everywhere. He is the answer to people's hopes everywhere. Not only was Israel awaiting people, everybody around the world is waiting. 
Now, they may not have a clear vision that they're waiting for a Messiah, but there's a sense in man, there's a hope in man that tomorrow maybe will be a better day. How many of us have said goodbye to 1991 and say hallelujah? And welcome 1992 with great hopes and expectations. We're waiting for something dramatic to happen on the stage of history. True? The whole world right now is waiting in expectation of, of the, not the dawning of a new world order, but the fulfillment, the, the, the blessings that will accrue to the whole world finally when this new world order that everybody is talking about comes together. And then the whole world is going to be blessed, right? No, the whole world is going to be cursed. Every time man autonomously puts his hand to something, gets his handprints all over it, he messes it up. Gets it dirty. But there, nonetheless, there's still this great sense of expectation. This great sense in people around the world. There's got to be something better. There's got to be something more. This can't be all there is. And so when Matthew describes Jesus as the son of David to a waiting people, Israel, he says Jesus Christ is that son of David. He is your deliverer. He is the, the answer to all of your hopes and dreams and prayers and longings. He is the fulfillment of everything you hope for. He's also the fulfillment of everything, every man and woman around this world in every generation has hoped for. Jesus Christ. Am I telling you something new? No, I'm not. But it's worth hearing again, isn't it? I think so. I'm going to hear it five times this weekend. <laughs> Excites me every time I hear it. Thrills my heart. Beloved, just as Israel did not recognize and did not receive Jesus as the son of David, as the Messiah, as the Deliverer, as the Christ, men still do not recognize and receive Jesus. People today, as in every generation, see the answer to their dreams, the answer to their hopes, coming in attaining a measure of wealth, attaining a measure of power or material plenty, or they have their own ambitions and they, they see that if I can just fulfill this ambition... And I'll be fine. I'll be fine. We don't see beyond the noses on our face. We tend to be very short-sighted. Some in our midst, however, tend to be um, a little bit more uh, long-sighted than others, but most of us are not. And we see even... Many times in the church, I was talking to another pastor last week and we were talking about the, 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 the dilemma in the church and the dilemma in the church for so many, it seems to be that we're just 
living our lives. We're just living our lives. We're consumed with all the, the kinds of things that consume our lives. And the kingdom of God seems to be a peripheral issue at best for lots of people. And that truly is a dilemma because we, we don't know how to reconcile them. We don't know how to, to say no to things that we have come to count and hold as cherished and essential. And uh, that requires that we be radical in a lot of ways. And when you choose to be radical, you choose then to develop people who are going to criticize you and talk about you and not in an admiring manner. Because you're really then going against the flow. True? It is not an easy thing to live for the kingdom of God. It is an easy thing to live for our own kingdoms, our own cherished ambitions, our own life, our own agendas. That's the difficulty we face. And in the midst of all of that, we have a great sense of frustration that life isn't what we thought and hoped it could be. You see, if men's dreams ever are to be realized, if men's dreams of peace, men's dreams of greatness and uh, satisfaction are ever to be realized, they're only going to be realized in the person of Jesus. In a relationship with Jesus Christ. An obedient relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me underscore that. Not in a, a platonic relationship, not in a relationship that says, well, I believe in Jesus but our lives will really be fulfilled. Our lives will really count it, from our subjective perspective only when we are in an obedient relationship to Jesus Christ. I, I'm absolutely convinced of that. Because man is man, because he is a child of eternity, he, like Israel, is always haunted by his dream, his destiny, and the only way to the realization of that is in Christ. An obedient relationship to Christ. Jesus said it so definitively when he said, if you're to be my disciple, if you're really to benefit by the relationship with me, you must deny yourself. You must pick up your cross and follow me daily. He's talking about an obedient relationship. He's talking about a relationship even in the midst of all that has affected us, all that distracts us, that we be single-minded. Now even as I say these words, I'm, I'm thinking, God, don't let people shut down. <laughs> Because of the awesomeness of what I'm describing to you, many people will suffer from the temptation at this moment to say that's impossible. I can't give up. I can't deny myself. I hear what you're saying. There's something that strikes true into my heart. But it's impossible. I don't want to pay the price necessary. Can't I just keep sitting here? <laughs> Be comfortable. 
Sure. Sure, you can sit there and be comfortable. I can sit there and be comfortable. Continue on the, the path, the treadmill that we're on. When in fact Jesus is not Lord. I don't say that to bring any guilt or condemnation on anybody. I say that as a matter of fact. That's where the issue lies. What kind of relationship do I have with him? What is my life counting for? We, we have fallen into the mode, and I was talking with Henry about this the other day, because he's our counseling pastor and oversees all of our helping ministries and those kinds of things and does such a wonderful job counseling people. He's such a dear, isn't he? Yes. So gentle. So understanding, so compassionate. So gracious. But we were talking about the, the church and the orientation towards rather than being a serving community, being a community where we're all interested in getting well. We slipped into what, what I would term a therapeutic mode. And, and hence, everybody's kind of in neutral, waiting to get well, waiting to get healed, waiting to get delivered from this dilemma, that dilemma, from the effects of abuse in our life and all that stuff. I don't mean to diminish people's backgrounds and the effect it's had on our life, but I would submit to you, when you cut away all the illusions and all the fat and all the other stuff, the bottom line is, Jesus has already come. And when I've walked down to the front and I've come to the altar and I said, Jesus, save me, forgive me, come into my life, change me. He says, okay. Okay. Now I'm in. What are you going to do? Now I'm going to walk in obedience to you. Easy to say, huh? Hard to do! Because in the midst of our afflictions, in the midst of a crisis of the moment, it's the furthest thing from our mind to be obedient. We slip into our old reactive modes. We fly off the handle. We get defensive. We retreat. We bury ourselves rather than what? Saying, God, your word says that a kind word turns away wrath. It's so nice that you cursed me. I appreciate that. <laughs> to bless those who persecute you. To pick up the cross. The instrument, which means death to our egos, our human egos. To not be so concerned with getting well. But in the midst of our infirmity, in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our grief, we still are committed to walking in obedience to him. See, that's the issue. That's the issue. That's the heart of the issue for the church. It's always been the heart of the issue for the church. But I would submit that the church today in our culture 
has gotten far away from that. Now, don't misunderstand me. I hurt for people. I hurt for myself. You know, I, I have a background that's full of all sorts of things that have affected me. And I struggle with those things every day myself. But the only way that I can live a life that is going to be meaningful is if in spite of all those things, in spite of the effects of all those things, I still am determined by the power of God resident in my life to walk in obedience to Jesus. He's given me the design. He says, live this way, live this way, live this way. It remains for me just to say, yes, Lord, and do it. Am I making sense? How are we going to realize, how are people around us going to realize that which they're longing for, they're hoping for, some sense of genuine, lasting fulfillment and satisfaction only in an obedient relationship to Jesus Christ? You can run after all the money in the world, all the fame in the world, all the material prosperity in the world, you can accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. You can have the benefit of all this stuff. But if you don't have an obedient relationship with Jesus Christ, that's all going to burn. That's all going to burn. And you may be running so hard and so fast so that you don't have to deal with coming to grips with your sense of emptiness that you're oblivious to it but there'll be one day when you're going to have to come face to face with it and that one day may be too late and just like Israel they had their focus on being delivered from their present circumstance. That the son of David was to come and save them from Roman domination. And because they were so self-focused, they lost sight. They didn't even see the son of David. They missed him altogether. And men today, you talk about Jesus, they roll their eyes. How irrelevant. Jesus, I would submit to you, would not be irrelevant to the world today if the church walked in obedience. If the church walked in faith. If the church said, oh God, this is hard, but I'm going to do it because I know it's right and true and I know this is your will. Do you suppose that would make a difference? Do you suppose the church would have a viable and powerful testimony? Sure, that's how the gospel was spread in the first century. Amidst persecution and suffering, great, great difficulties in the early church. People were being killed and murdered, but they were rejoicing in it. Unheard of. But the onlookers would watch and they'd see this and they'd say, there's something about these people. They weren't just saying, oh, heal me, heal me, heal me, heal me. That's obviously a caricature. 
I don't mean to be disrespectful, but I do that to emphasize the point. Our dreams will never be realized. Our hopes, our destiny, the greatness that God means for us will never be realized except through the Son of David. The Son of David. The second thing that this passage stresses for us is that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all the prophecies. In him, the message of the prophets came true. Any Jew worth his salt knew the Old Testament prophecies. Knew them all. One of my favorite is in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, describing... Isaiah writes to Israel and he says, For to us a child will be given, a son will be born. He goes on to describe and to name, to give some specific names to this child who's going to be given to Israel. And he says his name will be Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Think of those names. Mighty God. Everlasting Father, this child who's going to be born to Israel. Messiah. The Christ, the Deliverer. Israel did not even comprehend the, the fullness of that prophecy. They didn't understand that the Messiah would be God in the flesh. Astounding. But you see, the second thing that this passage stresses is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all those prophecies. All of Israel's history culminates in Jesus. He is the promised one. And he is none other than God in the flesh. This further tells us and conveys to us the confidence that life and the world are not without meaning. That there is purpose to life. There is direction to history. History is not meaningless. That there is a design. That God has an order. There is a goal that he's working towards. When in the midst of life, you throw your hands up and you say, what's the use? There's no hope. There is hope. There is a goal. There is a direction. There is a sovereign God who's working behind history, in history, to bring that goal to fruition. He's already demonstrated that through Christ in the fulfillment of all the past promises. History has a meaning and direction and purpose. It means, quite frankly, that evolution is not true. <laughs> but by far, by far, one of the most exciting and amazing things about Matthew's account of Jesus' pedigree is the names of the women who appear in it. This is absolutely astounding. 
If you were a Jew living in Israel, this is absolutely unheard of. You see, it was not a normal thing. It was not something that you would find as a regular occurrence to find the names of women in Jewish genealogies at all. This was a totally uncommon thing. A woman had no legal rights in Israel. No legal rights at all. She was regarded not as a person, but rather as a thing. A thing. Much as our society today views women as objects, most explicitly sexual objects. You see, a woman in Israel was merely the possession of her father or her husband to do with as he liked. He had complete disposal, be it her husband or her father. Even in the regular form of prayer, morning prayer, the Jew thanked God first that he was not born a Gentile. He thanked God that he was not born a slave. And lastly, he thanked God that he was not born a woman. That was a state of women. I say these things to underscore for you the significance of the listing of these names in Jesus' genealogy. The very existence of these names is not only surprising, not only extraordinary, but it is also wonderful when you understand why they're there. When we look at who the women are and what they were, cause for further amazement. After all, if you were to write a genealogy, would you not expect to see, if you were going to list women, to see women of great noble character, women of fine breeding background. Wouldn't we list people like that? Yeah. Does Matthew do that? No. Let's look at these women real quickly. Tamar is the first one. She's in verse 3. Tamar, you read about her in Genesis chapter 38. Tamar was a deliberate seducer and adulteress. Wonderful background. The second woman is Rahab. She's found in verse 5 of the genealogy. You can read about her in Joshua chapter 2 in the Old Testament. She was a harlot in Jericho. Again, another fine, upstanding member of Jesus' background. The third woman is Ruth. She is extremely unique herself. She was not even Jewish, but rather she was a Moabite woman. She was a member of a despised and hated race of people by the Israelites. Indeed, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3, we're told that no Ammonite and no Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. So you can see the attitude of Israel towards the Moabites. And of course, Ruth was a Moabite woman. And lastly, the fourth woman listed is um, described as being Uriah's wife. That was none other, of course, than Bathsheba. Bathsheba's claim to fame is that she was the woman who participated in an adulterous affair with David himself. Jesus really has kind of a checkered background, doesn't he? Think about it. If Matthew, 
if Matthew had ransacked the pages of the Old Testament for improbable candidates, he could not have discovered four more incredible ancestors for Jesus Christ than these four women. True? Amazing when you begin to understand who these women are. But in so doing, Matthew, in symbolic form, using these women, gives us the essence of the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of God. Here he shows us that the good news declares that the barriers have come down. All the artificial barriers, all the distinctions, all the things that have separated men from God and from one another have just been obliterated in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, We hear and see the first barrier, the barrier between Jew and Gentile now has been obliterated. No difference, we're told, in the New Testament. There is neither Jew nor Gentile any longer in Christ. The animosity that the Jews held for the Gentiles, the Gentiles were dogs. The animosity that the Gentiles held for the Jews, all this now is removed in effect in Christ. When you become a Christian, we're all the same. We're all the same. No more Jew No more Gentile. The great truth, God's love is available to all men through Christ. Relationship with God is available to all men through Christ. He is the great unifier. The second barrier that comes down is the barrier between male and female. This is glorious. If the National Organization of Women understood the import of the gospel... Striving after equality and equal rights. If they understood that only could equal rights be found in Christ, they would be storming the churches for membership rather than mocking the churches. Think about it. All the women's rights organizations striving after equality, striving after recognition, striving after significance, striving after worth, striving after thin air. Because without Christ, they'll never have it. Men and women in Christ stand equally dear to God and equally important to his purposes. No more distinctions. Women have finally been set free in Christ. Finally set free in Christ. Ladies, God bless you. God bless you and receive your heritage if you haven't already. You are free in Christ. The last barrier to come down, the third barrier, is the barrier between saint and sinner. This is so significant. You see, in Christ, now finally we see that somehow God can use for his purposes and fit into his scheme of things those who have sinned greatly. You see that in those four women listed in Jesus' pedigree. Four women who were despised, thought insignificant, worth nothing, sinners, 
worst backgrounds, but God sees fit to include them in the pedigree of Jesus Christ. Jesus says it best himself, Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but rather to call sinners. Thank you, Jesus. Amen? And hence, we have reviewed the genealogy of Jesus according to Matthew. Next time you read it, be blessed. Pray with me. God, we are humbled by your word and the richness of it. A passage that we so very often are tempted just to read over quickly or not read at all, can impart to us so much richness and so much hope, so much confidence and assurance. Thank you, Father, for your word, which indeed is rich. We cannot fully mine the depths of it and all the gold and the jewels and precious things that you have hidden in it. Continue, Lord, to illuminate us as we walk through these gospel accounts and as we study the life and the work and the ministry of Jesus. Lord, as we come to grips with what these things mean to us. Strengthen your church, O oh God, that we might be people who do walk in an obedient relationship with you. The Lord, we are committed to learning that which Jesus would have of us in these next days and weeks and months. And as we learn these things, Father, we'd be good stewards over them, implementing them in our life. We commit our way to you. We give you thanks. And we love you this morning. Amen? Amen.